Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Wow, are you ever lucky to tune in today for Spirit in Action? Our guest is Chuck Collins, and you could hardly imagine a better advocate for reducing wealth and income inequalities. You see, Chuck grew up in a 1% household, a descendant of the Oscar Mayer family, hence the title of his new book, born on third base. But Chuck Collins followed a different path by making the inspired decision, some would call it a crazy decision, to give away half a million dollars inheritance when he turned 26. Chuck talks powerfully about the serious and damaging consequences of wealth inequality, but he does it with compassion and empathy, without giving up any of his zeal for social justice. He's worked alongside groups like Patriotic Millionaires, fighting to preserve, for example, the estate inheritance tax, but also to help organize folks in a trailer park in order to buy it and turn it into a co-op venture. In other words, he works effectively and persuasively with folks all across the income spectrum. Chuck Collins is a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies. He has put his life in service to the higher good, and he joins us by phone today from somewhere in the vicinity of Boston, Massachusetts. Chuck, I am really so excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I loved Born on Third Base. It encompasses so much of what I'm vitally interested in, and you just you have so many great stories. I have to say, by the way, you hooked me for sure with the short story you have at the end of your preface. That one just, okay, I've got to read it. I, I was tearing up, and I went into the other room and read it to my wife, and she says, oh, I want to read that book too. <laughs> so It's really a masterpiece of thought and of stories and, I think, vision for the future. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Of course, this isn't your first book. You've been part of writing a lot of different things. Did you actually think of yourself as a writer or an activist? How did you start out your conception previously and now? Well, I guess I think of myself as kind of an organizer who uses books as a way to engage in people in conversation. A lot of the books I've written are about sort of inequality, what's happening really, you know, as our society pulls apart. And this recent book, Born on Third Base, was based on the lessons I've learned about how important it is to tell stories and how we need to sort of change the story of how we think about inequality as a barrier to change. 
again, this comes out of your identity as a one percenter. Now, I'm not sure to what degree you are fully a one percenter these days, since you work for a nonprofit and you do your work on that side of things. Maybe you're not a really a billionaire equal with Donald Trump. So what percent of you is a one percenter versus maybe identifying with the other side? I definitely grew up in the one percent, you know, in a wealthy family, connected to the Oscar Mayer meatpacking family. But I made a decision at age 26 to give away the wealth that I had at that point, and I'm no longer in the 1%. I mean, basically, I live probably, you know, I'm probably right in the top of the middle quintile, if you will. So I've changed my economic status and permanently altered my children's status as well. But I I think that my origins growing up in the 1% obviously had, like all of our class upbringings, very formative impact on me. So I don't reject that. I realize there's a lot of other advantages and privileges I have aside from money in the bank. Let's talk a little bit about those because I think it's so important in terms of our understanding of privilege. And you give stories throughout the book which make it clear how your upbringing, your family connections, your identity give you a certain amount of power and position in our society that someone who had different roots, like I did, I come from a lower middle income family, a working class family, what you have is different perhaps than what I have. So could you talk a bit about your privilege the riches that you carry with you, even though you don't necessarily have a bank account to equal those riches? Well, as I've come to understand it, I appreciate the multi-generational advantages I have. So something about having family that have had stable home ownership, who've lived in you know affluent and stable communities for generations, in my case, is a huge advantage. There's something about stability that allows people to create opportunity for themselves if you have to move every couple of years, if your family kind of has economic instability, if you have to rent and are forced to move, that sort of interrupts that. Whereas, you know, I had that sort of sense of well-being, sense of place, and then there's kind of like other benefits. I think having a sense of agency in the world is huge, and that comes from, you know, being in a family where actually if you saw a problem, you could potentially influence it partly because of your wealth and power. So I watched my father be engaged civically, being engaged politically, and it was like he basically taught me, you can do this too. You know, you don't have to just sit there and say, I'm, I have no power. So that's a very interesting thing. And what I've noticed is not everybody has that, and not everybody has that the, sort of the multi-generational benefits of stability. There's also debt. I don't carry college debt. I don't actually have to worry about caring for my parents, which is a huge economic benefit. You know, a lot of families are using what resources they have to take care of young people, to take care of parents, to take care of family members who are disadvantaged or have disabilities, and that's just not the case in my family. So on and on, the list goes on. I call it the compounding advantages of growing up in a wealthy family compared to the compounding disadvantages that some people feel. I think there are other features, other assets that you carry with you. I assume starting out, if you needed to, you could have gotten someone to co-sign for a loan. Donald Trump talks about getting a million-dollar loan from his parents. Well, you weren't necessarily getting that. But the fact that you had names that you're connected to that when you went in for an interview, you could say, well, this person can be a reference for me. That's immensely powerful. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you're naming some other very important ones. I mean, it, there's social capital. There's obviously white skin advantage, the fact that I'm male and white in a culture that overvalues our effort, labors. You know, I, I, I think of Donald Trump's story but partly because there's, there's a lot of people what I would call born on third base who downplay all those advantages. You know, I, I say, you know, I got the parental down payment assistance program you know, which is your parents lending you some money so you can buy the house and you pay them back, but it's on pretty flexible terms. Those kind of things, sociologists call it the intergenerational transmission of advantage. It's not just big inheritances. It's all the ways that families help their kids, affluent families. So I think this is really important in terms of the understanding, the privilege that some of us are born with that put us on third base, or maybe it's only second base or whatever. I, I know that I'm much further along because I am white and because I am male and because I got a decent education, although I grew up in a family with 12 kids, and I'm the only one out of the 12 to go to college. So clearly I'm standing out a little bit from my family background. But there's a reason why more of the other 12 didn't go to school. Did all of your siblings and cousins and everybody, did everybody go to college? Yeah, pretty much. I think that, that it's almost across the board. It's almost sort of expected, you know. And, and one thing that wealthy families do is they sort of over-prepare their kids from the get-go. Preparation for school, books in the household. If you don't have parents who are accessible, there's tutors and all kinds of enrichment experiences even, you know, preparation for work, my dad did an interesting thing, which is he had his friend hire me for the summer, and he hired his friend's daughter. So they basically hired us and gave us summer jobs in a way that kind of prepared us for work, but not just out there, you know, with strangers, but with people who knew us and could kind of coach us and where we could learn work habits and make mistakes without huge negative consequences. And the fact that I also grew up in an affluent community where there was all this property to take care of. There was like, I call it the works project administration for teenagers, you know, just like <laughs> lawns to mow and hedges to clip and dogs to walk and pools to clean and, you know, on and on and on down the list. If you wanted to make money, there was a lot of cash out there. And I contrast that again with living in an urban neighborhood where there's not enough people to pay kids to shovel snow and do chores and have the kind of first work experiences that are usually important and positive. So maybe people are going to still be surprised. You know, you're 26 and you give away a half a million dollars because, you know, you've received this. You didn't earn it per se. It was just, you know, it's left to you. It's, it's part of the trust that's passed on to you. Why did you do that? I'm sure a lot of folks will not understand. Well, you know, here I've already received one huge advantage, which is that that money helped me go to college without any debt. I think from a spiritual point of view, I almost felt like it was kind of getting in the way of my finding my own path. This will sound particularly odd, but, you know, I think part of the human condition is asking people for help and not paying for it. You know, and I, I kind of thought, like, well, I want to ask my friend Bill to help me fix my car, but I, I probably should pay a mechanic because, you know, so you don't have the vulnerability and the reciprocity of asking people for help, which is what most people in the world have to do. So I felt like it disconnected me from people in an interesting way. It made me like the kid at the ice cream parlor who's kind of looking through the window at the birthday party inside that I'm not part of, you know, which is called humanity. So there were ways in which I felt like the advantages were like a disconnection drug, 
and where I really just wanted to make my own way. Now, it's an illusion because from what you and I have been talking about, Mark, all the other advantages that are there, but at the time, it felt like a barrier. And just one other thing, I'd also just seen this wealth double over a five-year period. So this is like 1980, Ronald Reagan has become president, and those of us with assets are watching our assets accelerate through no labor of my own. And I just sort of felt on some level that that there was something wrong with that. You must have been hanging out with someone other than the Oscar Mayer descendants to get this idea. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that because I'm sure other people were influenced, and I, I know there's good people wherever you go. But where was this influence coming from? Where were these thoughts coming from? I was fortunate that when I left the bubble where I grew up in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, I moved to Worcester and then to Western Massachusetts, and I met people involved in the Catholic Worker Movement. I actually met Dorothy Day and, and a guy named Chuck Mathai, and I became adopted, essentially. I had some elders, including Wally and Juanita Nelson. Oh, you know them too, huh? Yeah, yeah. so I, <laughs> imagine I'm 23 years old, and the Nelsons are really part of my extended community. And Juanita Nelson was very famous for you know talking about usury. And she used to say funny things to me, because I was pretty honest with her about my situation. She said, you know, inherited wealth, it's not a terminal condition. You can do something about that, you know? <laughs> um, and then another point, she said, you know, how long would it take you with your labor to earn the amount of money that you just sort of landed in your lap? And I sort of did the math, and I was like, hmm, a couple hundred years, you know? <laughs> so she was loving and thoughtful. So, yeah, I was fortunate. I was around a number of elders who sort of had a critical perspective about wealth, but not a, a judgmental, you know, they understood that, that we live in an insecure society and that there's a lot of reasons why people hold on tightly to what they have. But, you know, the good news is I was 26 and I didn't have <laughs> any children or family responsibilities, and they, again, knew it would be harder as I grew older. So why not take the leap now, you know? Those are the kind of things they'd say to me. So I had a lot of encouragement. And uh, actually, I should tell you a funny story, which is I, at the age of 26, for my 26th birthday, Wally and Juanita gave me a, uh, a coffee can with 26 pennies in it, and they taped it up. And they said, this is an endowed experiment from the Bean Patch, which was the name of their garden, their farm. We want to know if money grows. So uh, <laughs> a year from now, when you open up this can, you count the pennies, if there are more than 27 pennies, 26 pennies, you will know that money grows. But if they're not, then you know that the money, in fact, does not grow on its own. And that it comes, that, <laughs> that increase comes from somewhere, and it comes from other people's labor, and it comes from the wealth of the commons, you know. Anyway, those are the kinds. So those, I was fortunate in that regard to be around people like that. And did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing particularly? You know, my parents are what I would call sort of fallen-away Catholics and Christians. When I was like six, we joined a Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Detroit, and it was a great community of people. And it was pretty humanist in its tradition. And by coincidence, I, I just preached in that church uh, a couple weeks ago. So I got to go back to the, my home church. But then when I left home, I did meet people who were connected to this Catholic worker movement. And I really got interested in Catholic social teachings, in particular teachings about property and ownership and the notion that there is no such thing as absolute ownership, that society has a claim on individual wealth, which I believe. 
And when I, in 1986, coincidentally the year I gave away the wealth, was also the year that the U.S. bishops wrote a pastoral economic letter called Economic Justice for All. And I was very engaged in helping organize education programs in the Diocese of Western Mass about that letter. And I, I met all kinds of fascinating people in it. It was very, very powerful, including the conversations with Catholic business leaders who were trying to think and honor their faith tradition and grapple with their responsibilities as business owners. Very, very wonderful discussions. Now, you've been doing this organizing, educating, this social justice work for some decades now including your work with patriotic millionaires and other folks. And we're going to get to a lot more of the information from Chuck Collins and Born on Third Base. But back in 1986, I guess my perspective is that in the 30 years since then, we've regressed. We're actually in a less good place than we were. I mean, besides what happened after 2008, where inequality has grown even further, it doesn't look like we've made a lot of progress to me. Has that been your perspective as well? Obviously, you had your feet on the ground working really hard. No, I, I share that perspective, Mark. Here I was watching my own wealth expand, but I also had this job where I was working with low-income tenants trying to buy their houses, buy their mobile home parks, and I really got to see how stagnant wages started to show up in people's lives. So really starting in the late 70s and early 80s, real wages for most working people stayed flat, and they pretty much have stayed flat for almost 35 years. And incomes and assets for the wealthy have gone up. In fact, a little summary phrase I have in my head was these two Business Week reporters wrote a book called The Judas Economy, The Triumph of Capital and the Betrayal of Work. And if I was going to have a bumper sticker for the last 35 years, it's that. The triumph of capital, meaning that wealth and assets have grown enormously. The return to wealth has been disproportionately high, and work has been betrayed. You can't really get ahead with your job, with your paycheck. You need at least two or three of them to really get ahead. And I think that tells the story, really, of the last 30 years. The thing that maybe is different between you and some other people who are speaking strongly against inequality is you don't tend to malign the 1%. I mean, you've lived there. Your family is maybe there, and you've got plenty of good friends. There's the patriotic millionaires and so many other good people that you've worked with who are part of that community. And you explain real clearly why we have to proceed with empathy instead of with violent class warfare. I think people need to hear about that, Chuck. Well, and I, I should start off by saying I understand it when people are angry at the very wealthy and see how the wealthy have used their power to rig the rules. And there is a segment of what I would call the disconnected or unreachable wealthy who use their wealth and power not only to rig the rules to get more wealth and power, but to change the culture, to promote the values of individual achievement and greed. And, you know, it's all about the individual, that wealth is a function of character. There's sort of a funded propaganda campaign, I guess, to promote that mythology. So that said, I also have this upbringing, as you describe. I have this experience of knowing people in the 1% who are not rule riggers and game fixers. They are actually working for economic justice. And then there's this huge percentage of, of the wealthy that I think are just unengaged. 
You know, they're happy to see their wealth grow, but they're disconnected. And I guess my message to everyone is, one, is the wealthy are not monolithic, and that there are people that we can invite into the work of fixing the future who are currently waiting to be called to something more meaningful. And as I said, wealth is a disconnection drug. It pushes people apart. It dampens empathy. It disconnects us from the struggles and and the joys of being part of the human family. So my message is invite the wealthy not, you know, not everybody's going to answer your call, but invite people to the table, build relationships, understand that it's sort of like you know many of us would do the same things that other wealthy people do if we had been raised with wealth or raised in a culture that overvalues wealth and undervalues everything else. There's something I ran into, what is it, 10, 20 years ago, I don't remember exactly, but it was very interesting perspective. I think think that most of us believe that the extremely wealthy are typically conservative. But what this article pointed out was that there's a certain range of income. I think they were saying between those who have wealth between 1 million and 10 million, they tend to dip particularly conservative. But then beyond that, as people get into you know, what you call upper richestan, yeah, yeah, billionaireville, as opposed to affluentville or, or lower richestan, that people in those higher neighborhoods tend to be more liberal politically. I'm saying that they vote Democrat more than Republican, that kind of thing, which, you know, that isn't the same liberal as it is to everyone else, maybe. But when they get past a certain amount of wealth, a lot of folks no longer are saying, I've got to fight for my privilege. They're saying, I've got enough, I I can give some away. There's Carnegie and others historically who've gotten to the ultra-rich area and then said, okay, how can I benefit the community? Yeah. So when you say they're not monolithic, I think that's true. And in fact, there may be a whole general group of people who are much more sympathetic to the work against inequality that you're doing than people conceive of. Has that been your experience in dealing with folks? Yeah, it definitely is borne out. And in Born at Third Base, I have a little section called The Roadmap to Richistan, which is an attempt to sort of tease out, you know, what might be some of those differences. And as you said, Mark, I think people who are first-generation wealth in the 1 to 10 million category very much come out of an experience of sacrifice, perhaps, and you know, feel connected very much to the source of that wealth. They may have been first-generation immigrants or they may have just been, you know, fortunate as entrepreneurs. And they recognize that there's a precariousness there, that they could slip back, that their children and grandchildren may not have the same advantages. So they are very focused on that passing on advantage. And they don't want to hear anything about, you know, the wealthy should pay their fair share of taxes. They're trying to, you know, reduce their taxes in every possible way. But when you get above a certain level, folks are able to sort of focus on longer-term legacy, uh, not just for their own children, but for the communities where they live, where the, you know, the workers that they work with, and uh, they make some very different choices. And some of them are even willing to say, huh, look at how I got some help along the way. And that, you know, the society after World War II did a lot to encourage particularly the formation of a white middle class and white affluence. And we have dismantled some of those things, you know. 
Uh, we don't have the like debt-free or low-cost higher education option right now for many people. So I think people get into a little more of a legacy space, and they also just think about not just their own kids, but the wider community. And I think that's something that is good. You know, in terms of talking with the rich folks, there's a lot of us who don't have the empathy or perhaps, you know, we're reacting from our own sense of deprivation, right? So they must be the bad guys and they must be evil people. Clearly, that's not truth. But you talked about you and Bill Gates Sr., that is to say the the father of the founder of Microsoft, did some traveling around working against the elimination of the inheritance tax, the so-called death tax. The two of you were going around and saying, no, this should be preserved. and There's a good reason to tax this inheritance. There was a group that you were going to to speak with, with Bill Gates Sr., and you were afraid. And I just thought it was such a beautiful story, and there's so many great stories in Born on Third Base, but this is one that just grabbed me, and I said, wow. Could you share with folks a bit of that story? Yeah, I had this great experience of working with Bill Gates' dad. We wrote a book together, and we actually went on kind of tour. And we were in Portland, Maine, speaking to a group of uh, business leaders. And many of the, you know, the small business community had been big opponents of the estate tax. And so I was, you know, he and I would both speak together and I would say, here's why we should keep the estate tax and kind of make the case. And then he would get up and just charm people in a way. I mean, first they're sitting there saying, here's the father of the founder of Microsoft. So there's a bit of a glow there. He's a terrific messenger. But he would say, you know, before we lead the estate tax to the guillotine here, I'd like to plead clemency. And he'd say, you know, if you have $10 million or $10 billion or $50 billion, and he would always say, uh, oh, I only know one person who has that kind of wealth, my son. <laughs> he'd say, if you have that kind of wealth, you probably worked hard and you probably brought some creativity, but you didn't do it alone. You didn't do it alone. You, you benefited from the public investments that we all make together. Uncle Sam was the great venture capitalist, Bill used to say, you know. That's where all the science and innovation and public investments, you know, we built that with our tax dollars and the education system and the infrastructure that we enjoy and the property rights protections. He would sort of unpack all the public investments and societal investments that contribute to wealth inequality. And here he's talking to business owners. And he sort of says, you know, we're very fortunate to be able to live and do business in a society that has such a focus on wealth creation and creates such a fertile ground. And then he did this kind of funny thing. He said, now, I want to do a little poll here. And he'd tell this little parable. He'd say, you know, God is sitting in her office, you know, and he, everybody <laughs> would laugh, you know, and the women would cheer. And he'd, he'd say, you know, she's worried. She's fretting, really, because the treasury of heaven has been depleted. It was probably overly invested in technology stocks. And so she comes up with this idea. She says, you know, maybe I'll auction off the privilege of being born in the United States. So she summons the next two spirits that are going to be born in the earth. And she says, you know, you could be born anywhere on the planet. In fact, there are many societies that are, are great places on earth to be born. But let's say you want to be born in the United States. And, and she's talking. he's talking to a, a group of business people. He says, What's it worth to you to be born in the United States? And all I want you to do is write on a piece of paper the percentage of your wealth that you will yield back to the treasury of heaven upon your death to get auction. You know, I'm basically auctioning off the slot of being born in the United States. 
And so then he looks out at the group. He says, okay, I want you all to do that. So all these business owners write down a number. He says, okay, who wrote 25%? Nobody. Who wrote 50%? Nobody. Who wrote 75%? A couple people's hands go up. He wrote 100%. He said, how many of you wrote 100%? Everybody else raises their hand. He says, that's what it's worth to be born in a country that has these amazing property rights protections and, and other liberties. That's what it's worth. Now, you're complaining about an estate tax, which is going to take 25 or 30% of your wealth to pay back the society so we can continue to have these institutions. It, it was a really remarkable little moment, you know, and I, I, I kind of was looking out at people sitting next to Bill, and I'm like, they're crying. Like, what's going on here? And I think he touched this very fundamental truth that we don't always hear about in business schools, which is we're all in one web together. We are totally connected, and we are nothing without each other and what we build together. And to sort of talk about that in a business context was a great moment. It's a great, great story. And folks, we're speaking with Chuck Collins, who's author of a new book, Born on Third Base, with a long subtitle, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good. It's a super, super book. I just think everyone should have it. And especially, I would say, not only people who are the 99%, but the 1%, we're all going to profit from reading this book. It will make us all rich in the deepest sense, not just the monetary sense. But Chuck Collins is my guest today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org with more than 11 years of our programs available for free listening and download. You'll find links. So when you want to get a hold of Chuck Collins and his work, inequality.org is the website. But the link's, of course, on nordenspiritradio.org. There's also a place to post comments. We love two-way communication, so please speak to us by posting a comment when you visit. There's a donate button. That is how this full-time work is supported. It's not because of the government, and it's not because of corporations. It's because you, the listener, are finding it of value. So please donate when you come. Even more important, though, I'd say, is to support your local community radio station the kind of 25 stations nationwide that carry this program, who do such an invaluable job of bringing alternative views and music to you that you just don't get anywhere else. So start by supporting them, and then if you have a few more shekels, pass them our way. Again, Chuck Collins is here. He works with the Institute for Policy Studies, his new book, Born on Third Base. He is a one percenter who grew up and back in 1986 gave away a half million dollars, which in today's dollars is going to be somewhere between one and two million, I believe. So it was a significant gift, but he did that because he wanted to be rich in a different way. That's, that's how I'd say it, Chuck, and I don't want to speak for you too much, but that is my impression. And my sense is that you are rich, and what you pass on in this book is is the story of that richness. There was one thing that I wanted to check with you, and we talked about privilege and the fact that those of us who got good schools or got the step up because we had someone to provide a reference for us or that we had someone who could cover our school for us or something, how we're privileged. But you speak of, and a lot of people speak of, the system being rigged. Are there other ways that you think that the system is fundamentally rigged? I've got my personal list, and I'm wondering if it matches, because you didn't spell out some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think that on a public policy level, tax policy is a great example where we've reduced taxes on the wealthy, 
and uh, shifted that to state and local taxes. So we used to tax the wealthy and it would fund debt-free education. Now we shift that obligation onto states and they shift it onto parents who are paying tuition and students, you know. That's kind of the shift that I see. There are ways in which global trade policies are really good for investors, you know, really good for people who own capital and investment capital, and not very good for wage earners. There are ways in which we subsidize corporations and the wealthy, and we don't provide public investments for first-time homebuyers in the way we used to. Things like that. Those are like some of the rules of the economy. And then there's all this sort of other cultural and other factors. So yeah, I have a long list of rule changes that I would advocate for to kind of create a more just and level playing field. And I would add to the list, and I'm sure you're aware of these, over the last 30, 40 years, we extended the length of copyrights and royalties that have to be paid to people. And what that is to say is, if you have a possession, you get to keep it more of it and longer. It gives you this step up, and I've been particularly appalled at the idea that someone who wrote a song back in 1933, that that's still under copyright, because that person and that person's children, and maybe even that person's grandchildren may even already be dead, but still, someone's going to say, well, I own this and you can't use it without giving me some more money. It seems to me that we've extended that period of copyrights and royalties, that kind of thing, to a point which only guarantees that inequality will grow. That's a great example of, of what I would call, uh, you know, we have this commons or commonwealth, which includes the gifts of nature, but it's also the things we build together. And the way I look at knowledge and culture and music is it's all derivative. We all are sort of building on things that, you know, people who've come before us. And for one group of people to sort of say, I own it, and you have to pay me for it, taking it out of the commons and putting it into a private ownership with a fee, actually is not the way that vibrant culture and research and science thrive and grow. It's like we are commodifying pieces of the commons. So, you know, what is music? Music is a derivative of the culture and the commons that we all have together. So I think that's a really important point. Is, and, and we more and more you see that fencing off of the commonwealth and people taking it for themselves. And this is very risky on the internet, you know, where people will start to say, well, I own this corner of knowledge and you have to pay to have access to it. And there's more and more of that going on. Or people who will get so that they own a certain genetic modified cell, uh, corn or whatever, uh, medicine, and then they can raise their price 5,000% and charge whatever because that the law guarantees them that possession. I don't have the sense that it was that way 50 years ago. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's been an expansion of an encroachment, if you will, of private property rights on things that should be kept in the public domain or in the commons. And a lot of wealth comes from people who figure out how to corner a piece of that commonwealth. Again, most medicines, if you think about health and medicine, there's a lot of traditional practices, you know, and the use of herbs and elements and medicine is a commons, you know. Health wisdom is something that should be part of the public and community domain. And the idea that people take little pieces of that out 
and modify one little element of it and then claim ownership over it and then charge the rest of us for it. No wonder healthcare is so expensive. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many elements to any story we talk about. Fortunately, you go in sufficient depth without over-laboring the items in Born on Third Base that I think people will walk away from this book with a more clear view of both what's happened historically and what moment we are at right now. One of the things that you talk about in a little bit more depth is the idea of charity versus the public safety or public financing of things. And I, I don't think you're putting down charity at all, but I think you're pointing out that it is not the answer. And in fact, it can work against our public welfare, against our commonwealth. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one thing I'm appreciative about the United States is we do have a robust independent sector and we have a private charity sector and we as individuals give to organizations and those organizations are independent of government and they're independent of private corporations. You know, it's a healthy element of pluralism. But what I'm seeing more and more is that at the top, at the wealthiest heights, is people are reducing their taxes by creating charitable foundations and then using that charitable foundation kind of as an extension of their personal private power. And sometimes that power is used for good. Maybe they're giving to certain kinds of organizations or they're supporting you know, community empowerment in some way. But a whole lot of that wealth is kind of reinforcing the status quo. So I have two problems with that. One is this is private power that's subsidized by you and me, the taxpayer. You know, for every gift that a billionaire gives through their foundation, you and I, Mark, are chipping in 40 or 50 cents on that dollar in lost tax revenue. So the charitable sector does good work, but it is not a substitute for justice and a healthy public sector. And if you play this out into the future, we're looking at a situation where every billionaire is going to have their own private foundation, and they will be basking in the glow of you know, oh, we're giving back to society and look at all the good we're doing and they'll be getting lots of awards and accolades. But we'll be living at a time where our local treasuries will be sort of in trouble, you know, state governments and localities and we'll be living in a more austere time. And I think we don't want that to happen. I think we should reform aspects of philanthropy to prevent that from happening. And you go into, as I said, Chuck, considerable more depth in the book about that. And you put the pieces there that make it clear. So anybody who's got arguments popping up in their head, read the book first. Read Born on Third Base, and then you'll understand how this fits together in a more fortunate future for our society that we could have if we follow some of the recommendations from Chuck Collins. Also from Gar Alpervitz, I interviewed him several years ago and just an amazing man with great ideas. And I came away from his reading with a sense of possibilities for the future. Even if we don't overturn Citizens United, he pointed out all of these different alternatives for ways forward where we can be empowered. And uh, then you go into talking about Transition Town and resilience circles, these kind of things. And all of a sudden, we no longer need to feel limited in our possible futures by the fact that someone 
at some level of government is passing laws that are inimicable to our best interests, that there's a whole lot of alternatives of uh, ways forward. And Gar is certainly one of those people highlighting those and the Transition Town movement. I, I love it, and I've done several programs related to it. Do you want to grab any one of those threads and talk about particular hopeful possibilities for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is uh, if we kind of look at the national political environment, it's pretty easy to feel depressed because of just how captured the national Congress is by, you know, powerful, wealthy money interests and global corporations. But I, I guess the important thing is that there, there, we have, we still have quite a, a bit of room to move. There's all kinds of cool innovation stuff happening at the local level where, you know, the, the new economy is kind of being built in the shell of the old economy, expanded worker ownership, more people taking their capital, wealthy people taking their capital out of the global financial casino and putting it into local enterprises that actually benefit the community and everyone. There's kind of a little undercurrent, very positive undercurrent, the new food system, people figuring out how to reduce their energy consumption, creating local livelihoods and jobs. So whenever I'm feeling blue reading the national news, I shift my gaze to all the stuff that's literally happening within 100 yards of where I live and work, you know, all this innovation. And I think that's, that's really going to be, you know, bringing that to scale is, is really the, the hopeful alternative that I see. And when you're talking about resilience circles, there were some really inspirational stories that were part of that. And again, folks, born on third base, I'm referring to the 10,000 stories that come out of this book that you really want to connect with because they're so empowering. You talk about rich people wanting to be part of resilience circles, and they don't need it from the point of view of money. I mean, we've been trained in our society that if you've got money, you're free. But in fact, as you've already commented about your personal situation, it cuts you off that, uh, in fact, needing to ask for help and having vulnerability leads to a deepening of connection and an important resource. So maybe you can comment about this from a personal point of view. You gave away this big pile of money when you were 26. What riches have you been able to access because you got rid of the money? Well, I think that you know one thing that happens is when you are back in an interdependent community, when you have to somewhat depend on your neighbors, that creates a both a vulnerability, but it also deepens our connection to each other. And I tell the story in my own church of how after the economic meltdown, 2008, just how vulnerable people were feeling. And you think about anyone who's listening to this program, just think back to, you know, October 2008, how were you feeling? And in our congregation, we really came together and said, how can we take this very private moment of, you know, how do people feel economically and make it a community concern and hold one another as we go through this? And I mean that in a metaphorical sense that a lot of us don't talk about our economic lives and what we're struggling with. And, and yet we all have these personal struggles. How are we going to care for our parents? How will we cover these health care expenses? What if I lose my job? Where will I end up? And we started to talk to each other and realize, you know, there's a lot we can do to help each other. We can't necessarily be a bank or emergency housing, but people started to step up and support one another. And we realized, like, our mutual aid muscles were really weak. We were out of practice, and that was a really encouraging thing. And then 
people who had resources saw that and and started to join these circles as well because they saw that this was the spice of life. This was the connection. They didn't want to be left out. They wanted to be part of that working together. Even though they had the resources, they saw that they were isolated and that their wealth was isolating them at that moment. And so they were stepping in to be connected with the community. And it, it was another sign yet again that that wealthy people, myself included, wealthy people have a lot to benefit from when we don't have a wall of money around us, buffering us and insulating us. I've tried to point out to people, and I don't think they get it. Back in the days when you used to borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor because you didn't have a car and you didn't have the money to go to the store, that in fact you had to depend on your neighbor, that leads to a certain amount of safety and identity and richness. It's it's a safety net of its own that people think they're free when they've got money, but that really means that they're dependent on the corporations. That means that those who you're spending money with, in essence, get to control you. And I don't think people really see that. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important story. You know, my <laughs> the remarkable woman I'm married to, she once when we were we were kind of living in an area we, where we were new, she just went around and asked people for milk and sugar. We had it, you know, but it was sort of her way of just like showing up and letting and sort of saying, I need your help. Oh, yeah. And people are so happy to help their neighbors and get to know their neighbors. And it's like, oh, nobody has come to my door, you know, in 10 years to say hello. You know, you realize like, oh, my gosh, we're so atomized. Now, this is not true for everybody. And I think people who live in kind of new immigrant enclave communities have some of that mutual aid because they need to depend on one another. But more and more, I think we don't know our neighbors and we're more and more disconnected. And more and more people are living alone or just with one other person and don't know their neighbors. So a huge part of building real security and real wealth is building that web. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think my eyes were open to a lot of this because I served in the Peace Corps in West Africa. I lived in a village where people had dirt compared to what we have, right? But they always knew their neighbors were going to be there for them. Anybody had a piece of meat, you can divide it three ways so that three people can eat. You know, I mean, it was mm-hmm. it, it was so clear that people were not alone. And I think that's one of those important quotations that you shared. I mean, you said, no, I'm not able to help, but I will stand by you. Could you talk about your experience of that, in particular maybe in your experience of Jamaica Plains First Church, the Unitarian Universalist Church you attend? Is that part of the ethos there? I think so. I mean, I mentioned this idea of holding one another, but there's also this idea of accompaniment, which actually comes from Archbishop Romero and the sort of Christian concept of you know, how do you help somebody? And sometimes it's not like giving or charity. Sometimes it's just accompanying somebody in their journey. You know, I may not be able to help you, Mark, if you have cancer, but I can accompany you in your effort to heal yourself. I can be with you, go to the doctor. I can pray for you. I can stand by you. And I think we underestimate just how important that is and I think we, you know, sometimes we feel powerless, like, oh, somebody has lost their job. I don't have enough money. I can't actually help them financially, but I could accompany you in your journey. And I think there's both bad things happen, but if bad things happen in isolation, it's like a double wound. Whereas if you are, you know, I had uh, just had the experience of the last 
four months where a very, very close friend of mine discovered that she you know, had a relapse of cancer. She was living in a situation that wasn't very good. She was living on a third floor apartment in a not a very good setting. And she came to live with us for the last three months of her life. And we don't have a huge house, but this is somebody who knows us, who knew, knew all of our children, who when, I, when we would go away and we needed somebody for the weekend to be with our kids, she was the person who stayed with us. So, of course, you know, she came and lived with us. Now, not everybody can offer that, but what was cool was there were a lot of other people in our circle who also accompanied her in her final months. And sometimes it was just sitting and holding, you know, her hand or just being present. And we just underestimate the power of accompaniment. So sometimes we can't always fix the situation, but we can just be with each other. You know, I tend to think of Unitarian churches, uh, UU churches, Unitarian Universalist churches, as being relatively influent. I mean, usually it's the people, there's a very high percentage who have been college educated, which puts them above the average for the United States. And because such folks are relatively well-privileged, maybe we are a little bit less dependent on each other than, say, I I visited an inner-city church when I was living in Milwaukee, and it was all black. I guess the six of us who were there visiting were the only white folks. But I sense a dependence on one another in that those folks that we don't have in the Quaker meeting I'm part of, right? How does that care for one another and accompaniment happen in the Unitarian Church that you're part of? Well, you're making a really important point. And actually, I remember telling a friend of mine who's a member of one of Boston's historic black churches, you know, about our resilience circle. He said, oh, we've had a mutual aid society in our congregation for 125 years, meaning it's hardwired into it. We, haven't, we didn't make a separation between material security and spiritual life. We see them together. <laughs> I love that story because, you know, it's like, oh, okay, as, as congregations become more prosperous, or at least think they're, you know, people kind of go off and say, oh, we're here for our spiritual sustenance. And a lot of congregations also feed each other provide food, take care of one another when they're, you know, and I'm not just talking about, I mean, in our congregation, we have the, you know, if you're sick or you have an accident, the casserole posse will swing into action and meals will appear, you know, but I'm talking about kind of integral to the life of the congregation. And, you know, in our congregation, we're saying, how can we be a resilience hub? How can we be a center of not just enlivening our spiritual lives, but supporting each other in our material existence? Maybe we, so we have like a, a fall canning weekend, you know, where we, we just like fire up the big institutional kitchen and can hundreds of, of quarts of tomato sauce and people bring their crops and it's a shared ritual. Well, that's, that sounds like we're, it sounds like 150 years ago, you know. Right. <laughs> what we used to know, which is let's help each other prepare for the future, for at least the long winter. <laughs> and just as we formed our deep friendships back when we were more vulnerable, whether it was in college or high school. I mean, there's friendships there that even though we may seem very different, you know, they they have an ownership on our heart 
that it's not so easy to find these days. We build those kind of friendships when we are vulnerable to one another. I don't know. I think maybe it was in the book. I shared it at the Quaker meeting that vulnerability, you can't have that kind of deep connection without vulnerability. Yeah, there's a quote by Charles Eisenstein that I like, which is, you can't have authentic community without vulnerability. I see this among my wealthy friends, which is, what does community mean to you? Well, it's, it's uh, people getting together to co-consume. Oh, we're going to go out to dinner. We're going to go on a trip together. We're going to buy these experiences together. Well, that is a very thin community. It's only when somebody, like, has an accident and everybody has to, like, sort of jump in and help that the real bonds are formed. And when I say that wealthy people are waiting to be invited, I think people are being waiting to be invited to authentic community of the real exchange of goods and needs, not sort of arm's length. I call it stiff arm philanthropy. It's like, here, here's a gift, but my arm is pushing you away. It's the open invitation, and it's wealthy people showing up with their needs. I tell the story of one woman, Jenny Ladd, of how you know her living in a community and being connected to a place and having resources and how she sort of tries to have show up with her full self. So, yeah, we need to go beyond the community of consumption to the real authentic community of connection. And folks, that's just one of many lessons and stories that you'll find in Born on Third Base by Chuck Collins, subtitle, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good. Long title, but that only scratches the surface of the quality that you'll find in this book. Chuck Collins does an amazing job. He's part of the Institute for Policy Studies. You'll find him and more information about him and his work on inequality.org. The link, of course, is on nordenspiritradio.org. Chuck, I could sit and talk to you all day. Every moment that I talk to you, I know there's another story going to come out that's going to open my heart and make me more satisfied with the possibilities for our world. So thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you for giving away that money so that we could be peers and that you could join me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It was really great to talk to you. I want to thank Andrew Jansen for production assistance with today's program. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy, let in the light, it will heal you. And you can feel you and sing out a Song of the Soul.